0: Welcome to As Spiders Do, the University of Richmond podcast where we share stories about our amazing alumni. I'm your host, Maggie Johnson from the class of 2018. Today, I'm speaking with Angelo Villagomez from the class of 2000. Angelo is a conservation advocate who uses indigenous values and the scientific method to address issues like habitat loss, fishing and climate colonialism. We talk about family, finding community as a transplant and building relationships to change laws. Here's my conversation with Angelo. to just kind of jump in and start with you know, how you ended up at University of Richmond
1: so I applied for early acceptance at the University of Richmond in the fall of 1995 I went to high school in Florida University of Richmond seemed like a great school you know I applied to probably 10 schools including schools in Florida I applied to Yale I applied to rice but I just thought Richmond would be a great place to go to school I was thinking I wanted a great education I was looking at liberal arts schools. And just Richmond was my top choice.
0: Did you always know that you wanted to major in biology or was that something you found?
1: When I first started at Richmond, I really enjoyed AP physics. And I, oh, cool. I thought I would make a great physicist. <laughs> and my freshman year, I took a whole bunch of physics courses and I took organic chemistry. I think I got a, an F in organic okay. chemistry because I wasn't really the best student at that okay. point. And I got to some of the 300 okay. levels in physics and realized that it was just like a bunch of math and decided, that, well, this is not for me. And I was like 18 or 19 by my freshman or sophomore year. I forget exactly. And at that point in my life, I knew I wanted to be like a scientist, you know, or something. And so it was the, the choices available to me were physics, which I realized I hated, chemistry, which I wasn't very good at, and then biology. And so I, I took several of the intro biology courses and went from there. Never looked back.
0: So you kind of mentioned that you were looking for a liberal arts school, but then you kind of ended up more on this like science side. Was there any tension for you there? Or did that kind of just all fit for you?
1: It worked for me. You know, I wanted to go to a smaller school. I didn't want to go to one of the bigger schools and get lost. Like at that time, I was Richmond like, maybe had like 3,000 students. I don't know how big the school is now. It was, it was a good fit. But I also, I ran cross country, but my grades were so bad I got kicked off the team.
0: Oh no. <laughs> were you involved in anything else on campus or did you kind of stick to the the science?
1: So there was an international house at the time in the 90s. It was these two houses over by the frat houses. That was where most of the foreign students and I, you know, you haven't asked me. I'm actually from the Northern Mariana Islands, even though I went to school in Florida. It's a U.S. territory, but like sometimes you're treated as foreigners, you know, mm-hmm. like Puerto Rico. And after I did cross country my freshman year, but I didn't really join a bunch of any other clubs. I mostly hung out with like the international students. I did work. I, I worked in some of the restaurants i was not independently wealthy so I you know I needed to like feed myself so I did work a lot of times when I wasn't at school and then with some of the international students we got we joined a men's soccer league in Richmond we would play on the weekends
0: I feel like even even today a lot of times you find that students kind of stay on campus and don't always engage with the city of Richmond as much so I love that you guys kind of got out there and and did stuff in the city and, and kind of made that connection between the two
1: yeah. I, you know, that, like, I haven't thought about this stuff in like 20 years. Yeah. So like, you know, neurons are starting to fire. I, also, it, you are right. We did stay on campus a lot. Like when I wasn't working, I think I played in every intramural league. I, I don't think I ever won one of those t-shirts though. I, okay. I, I was never the best athlete unless I was just running long distances. If you, if you won one of the intramural leagues, you got like, an intramural champion t-shirt and oh, cool. like, they didn't just give those away to anybody. They were, right. they were very, 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 very valuable.
0: So you grew up on the islands and then you ended up in Miami. Was that a family move or kind of what, what was that like growing up, moving around?
1: Yeah, I just, I moved around a lot. I actually lived in Massachusetts for a while too. Oh, cool. uh, we lived in London for a while um, mm-hmm. and it was actually Orlando. So, um, but my mom works in education. She was an administrator at Rollins College. And so all wherever mom went. Okay. And, and Rollins, I don't know if this is still a thing, but Rollins is part of the Associated Colleges of the South. That's why Richmond was on my radar because it was this, oh, this grouping of schools that do stuff together. And provide scholarships.
0: Did you have a favorite place that you lived growing up, or one place that really stuck with you?
1: Uh, home is always home. You know, it's not that I liked or didn't like some places. I think yeah. every t- every teenager is a pain in the ass. And so, like when I lived in London and some of the early years in Florida, didn't necessarily love it. But I think that was just more of I was 13 and 14 years old. But the islands are home. Like the islands will always be home. That's uh, my my dad has passed away. That's where that's where he's buried. And in my career, I actually do a lot of work out in Micronesia. So I was just out there early this summer. Pre pandemic, I would be out in the Pacific Islands once or twice a year doing the That's type wonderful. of stuff that I do.
0: That's so cool. Do you have other families still living out there? Oh
1: yeah. Like I, I have oh, one great. of the I don't have so much a family tree, but a family mangrove. Both sides of my family are Catholic. So on the on the island side where Chamorro and like my dad had ten brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I have six brothers and sisters with my dad. Oh, cool. And then my, my mom is Irish Catholic from Massachusetts. And, you know, she's one of five kids. And so I've got on both sides of my family, I have no shortage of cousins.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Do y'all ever do like big family reunions or do you just kind of see each uh, other as? Not,
1: I, I, not lately. The, the the families are just so large now. Uh, we, <laughs> we actually, on, on the island, we held a, we, we ancestry is very important to Pacific mm-hmm. Islanders. So we keep very good deta- track of like who's related okay. to who. Because this might come up if you like meet a girl and you want to marry her, and then it turns out she's your cousin, oh, no. uh, so <laughs> it's important that you do these kinds of things. But we had a, a family reunion like 30 years ago on the island, five generations of Villa Gomez's was about 1500 people.
0: Oh my gosh, wow. uh, now <laughs>
1: it now would probably be like 10,000 people. Large Catholic families in a developing yeah. country, right? Huge numbers of people.
0: That's got to be such a a good time with everyone.
1: Living on the island, it's like small-town America, right? You you can't go anywhere without everybody knowing you. Yeah, But but even more so because there's a shore and people can't get off the island. It's it's easier to leave small-town America than it is to leave uh, small-island America.
0: So tell me a little bit about the work you do out in that area.
1: I'm a professional ocean advocate and sort of got started when I was at the University of Richmond. I never took an environment class and i never took an oceanography class but i work in ocean conservation which is kind of a weird thing but i advocate for managing our oceans so that they're full of fish and that there's lots of sharks and tunas things for us to eat but also healthy coral reefs and all those sorts of things the main tool that we use is they're called marine protected areas and these are just places in the ocean where we restrict the most harmful human activities mostly fishing, but also mining and drilling and dredging and those sorts of things. And I, I've helped create some of the largest protected areas on the planet. When people think about like the American Pacific, they mostly just think about Hawaii, but there's also American Samoa. There's the Mariana Trench. A lot of people don't know that the Mariana Trench is in American waters. That's okay. where I'm from, Mariana mm-hmm. Islands. But there's also a bunch of uninhabited islands that most people only have heard of because of uh, like World War II battles. So like mm-hmm. Wake Atoll, King Manapalmara Island. And, and these islands are, you know, the the last unfished wildernesses on the planet because we have what's called an exclusive economic zone. These were designated by President Reagan in 1983. And wow. even though the islands are just like tiny little dots in the middle of of the ocean, U.S. control extends out to 200 miles. So oh, wow. you've got these big blue circles when you look on a map. That are controlled by the united states and most of them are protected areas these days thanks to And this has only really come about like in the last 10 15 years thanks to president bush president obama not so much the last guy but president biden is also very interested in managing our oceans
0: that's really cool what does your day-to-day work look like you you know you walk in you come into work what does that look like
1: so i travel a lot So as I was coming up in my career, my sort of specialty was I would fly out to islands and I would look at their laws and figure out what needed to be changed in order to protect sharks or to protect tuna or to create a protected area. And then I would work with whoever the decision maker was. And sometimes this was like a president. Sometimes it was the Senate. Sometimes it was just like an agency staff when we had to change some regulations. And then I would work with them on on how to make that change. Uh, I'll admit a lot of it was drinking beers. And so like my specialty is like sitting down and drinking beers and talking about fish and talking about fishing, coral reefs and climate change. But you know, COVID has kind of made things weird. Mm -hmm. That was like in the before times. Back then I probably traveled about half the time. Now I'm in the office 90% of the time. So Mm -hmm. it's a lot more Zoom calls, a lot more writing. But like any other sort of scientist slash policy expert, I spend a lot of time on email, spend a lot of time on Zoom meetings.
0: Yeah, it, it reminds me just kind of that idea of sitting down and having a beer and talking it through. It kind of takes it out of that stuffy, like super academic, like you have to think through it and just you, you see people in their environment and you can kind of see that impact. I have yeah. to imagine that's a lot more yeah, than I mean, Zoom meetings. Passing,
1: <laughs> pass, passing laws in the United States has become difficult in the last mm-hmm. you know, 10, 20 years because of the partisanship. But that doesn't necessarily exist in other countries. And you know, a lot of these decisions come down to real people, you know, like mm-hmm. somebody somebody has to introduce the law into the Congress and they have to have, you know, a, a backing or a reason for doing that. And so you you work with them to, you know, help them feel ready and comfortable to to submit that law. And then you got to get people to vote for it. So you yeah. you do all the things that campaigns do to get people to vote for things.
0: Do you have any particular kind of story or people you worked with that like really stand out that felt really impactful for you?
1: Oh, the absolute best beach I've ever been to is Grace Bay in the Turks and Caicos. It is just the most lovely white sandy beach with like parrotfish and turtles and coral reefs that I've ever been to. The best fishing spot I've ever been to is Christmas Island in the Line Islands of Kiribati. This is a place only has power six hours a day. Oh, wow. There's no island-wide power. It's only Mm -hmm. your hotel uh, has a generator Mm -hmm. and you only have power as long as the generator is on. The airport is only open on Wednesdays. So you you get there on Wednesday and then you leave on Wednesday. And if they lose your luggage, which they did for one of the people I was with, you don't get your luggage because it comes on the same day that you leave. But it's got this lagoon with like the absolute best bone fishing on the planet. And, you know, the science of fishing is pretty clear. If you don't kill the fish in the ocean, there will be more fish in the ocean. (laughs) Less fishing, more fish. And this big lagoon in the middle of the Pacific Ocean has been unfished for many years because the value that the community gets from American fishermen coming to do recreational fishing vastly exceeds what they could make by eating those same fish. So we we went there and we went fishing inside this lagoon and the fish just jumped in the boat. I mean, like you, you almost didn't even have to put a line in the water.
0: <laughs> I love just kind of that idea of exploring those places where maybe not everyone else gets to go. I think that's really, yeah. really
1: cool. I was working with the government of the Marshall Islands to protect their shark. Mm-hmm. And the Marshall Islands is famous. There are two famous Hollywood actors who are from okay. the Marshall Islands. Uh, the first one is SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> um, and the second one is Godzilla. Cool. And the U S military has a, a big footprint in these islands and they have a military base called Kwajalein. And like in order to get here, let me just describe it. So you have to fly from Washington, DC to Houston, Houston to Hawaii. That takes about eight hours from Houston mm-hmm. to Hawaii. Then you have to fly from Hawaii to Majuro, which is another five hours and then another flight from Majuro to Kwajalein. And then you get off the boat, you get off the plane, And it's a military base Mm -hmm. and if you've ever seen like lost and the the dharma initiative this is what this place looks like it's just it's small town america military base on a Uh coral atoll in the absolute middle of nowhere and i was there to go shark diving because we were we were trying to protect the country's sharks and so we had brought about 100 kilograms of raw tuna that that come off some of the tuna boats and Mm -hmm. we took that and we rented a boat And from the military base and we went outside the reef and we dumped all that tuna and blood and guts in the ocean and waited for about 30 sharks to show up and then we jumped in the water and we filmed them and took pictures.
0: Oh my gosh. Wow. That's crazy. And I have all
1: I have all my fingers. None of them. That's great. None of (laughs) them. All your toes too.
0: (laughs) That's so cool. That's amazing. That's just I can't even imagine just like jumping in with all the sharks. That's so cool.
1: You know, for these guys who are who are voting yes or no to protect sharks they're sitting in the legislative building which is not the most beautiful place uh, (laughs) in most of these places and you want to show them the beauty that they have like the the riches that are just meters from their shore so that's Mm. we wanted to get in the water and actually find some pictures of the sharks that were in their waters and and we did they were there
0: that's so cool do you ever get the opportunity to like bring some of those people who are maybe sitting in a legislative office like out with you like kind of what's that power of bringing people with you
1: yeah I've definitely done some of that I'll to be honest most of the lawmakers don't want to go looking (laughs) at the fish they want to go catching the fish Um, (laughs) and so they when I have gone out with lawmakers usually it's to go fishing and they're they're trolling for tunas. What I have done though is is I've brought a lot of people from the islands to Washington D.C. so that oh. they can you know walk through the halls of power and meet mm-hmm. the people who are making their their decisions. So we have I, I was talking about the US territories before. But the US territories, it's it's kind of a weird thing. And like most Americans don't know that we still have colonies. And like, you know, Puerto Rico, Guam, American Samoa, like they're just they're owned by the United States. And it's kind of a weird, it's kind of an un-American thing. We don't get to vote for president. The decisions that are made are made on their behalf without their input, for the most part. For a lot of the decision makers in Washington, DC, they may have never heard of these places, even though they're making decisions for them. And they've right. probably never met people from there. So I've done a lot of bringing people to Washington, D.C. We go to the Department of Interior, and we go to the Department of Commerce, we go to the White House, we knock on doors at the Capitol and introduce people. And my concerns are fish and sharks and protected areas. But, you know, the, the folks on the islands have many, many other concerns that that right. affect their entire life. And they don't necessarily always have access to, you know, we live in this democracy, but these some of these islands are Eight or nine thousand miles away, it's a ten-hour time difference, I and mean, it can be really difficult for them to get the bend the ears of some of the people who make these decisions. So, right. some of the work that I've done is to actually physically bring some of the leaders, some of the community members, out to Washington D.C. so that they can meet with these leaders who, you know, make decisions on their behalf.
0: That's really cool. And do you see does that does that have a really strong impact on our, our lawmakers here when they get to have those interactions?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the people who make these decisions are people, you know, when it comes to advocacy, whether it's climate advocacy or conservation advocacy, a letter is better than a tweet. A handwritten letter is better than a printed letter. Uh, a mm-hmm. phone call is better than a letter. And an in-person meeting is better than, than a phone call. And so when you, when you have somebody in front of you and you make that human connection and you, you get to understand the realities of, of what it's like to live where they are, it's very powerful. And, you know, we're a democracy. This happens every day here. People are always knocking on the doors of our leaders up in this town.
0: What are some of the biggest challenges you're facing in your role right now?
1: So conservation changes, right? I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And when I was first, you know, I did science before I did conservation. But in conservation, we learned about you know, Thoreau in the 1800s, Aldo Leopold, John Muir, you know, old white guys. And the focus of our conservation has changed as well. So a lot of the landscape protections that we have in this country were scenic landscapes. There were places that were pretty to look at. You know, Angela Adams wanted to take pictures of them. And then Rachel Carson changed conservation with her book, Silent Spring, and it became about, you know, the animals that lived in some of these places. And, I, you know, in the 80s and 90s, it was save the whales. It was, you know, save the rainforest. And increasingly, it's climate change. And I think climate change has actually overtaken the discussion of protecting nature. It's, climate is gets much more attention. But the murder of George Floyd changed a lot of things in this country, and it really changed conservation as well. And and conservation hasn't always had the greatest of early leaders. The Sierra Club apologizing Mm -hmm. for the actions of John Muir. A lot of conservation was based on the removal of Native Americans from their lands. And then after those lands were emptied of people, they were turned into national parks. And and some Mm -hmm. of that history was kind of ignored. And then post-George Floyd, we started looking at some of these issues again. Issues of access, you know, like mm-hmm. physical access of mm-hmm. being able to go to the beach, but also political access of, you know, who was making these decisions? How are those decisions made? My career kind of changed with the murder of George Floyd. My, I was really a science focus before, wow. and it was about, you know, how do you, we made arguments of for like, protect this many fish, or we'll protect these many sharks. And these days it's more about people. So, you know, less, mm-hmm. it's people in nature, Specifically my work is focused on the role of indigenous people in the United States in conservation and there are 572 recognized tribes in the United yeah. States you know that we, we don't learn that we are 50 states five territories mm-hmm. and 572 tribes when we're right. in elementary school but if you think about where nature is you know nature is far away nature is on the fringes of our society mm-hmm. well who lives in those places indigenous peoples right so you know a lot of these tribes are the longtime stewards of, of nature so my work has really changed to be from a science focus to now much more of a, of a people focus and it's less about getting to like the what so mm-hmm. the way we would define conservation in years past was in square kilometers you know how many square kilometers of ocean did we protect this year and that was the what mm-hmm. and these days it's more about the who and the how than, oh, cool. than that what
0: That's so fascinating. Can you give me kind of an example of the who and the what, like some of the works you're doing, any of the projects you're working on now that you're able to share?
1: Yeah. So the Pacific Islands, again, Mm -hmm. 99.5% of our marine reserves and and marine reserves are the the strongest type of protected area. They restrict all fishing. Mm -hmm. It's like a no-take protected area. It's just for nature. 99.5% of the protected areas in the U.S. are in the Pacific Islands. Oh, cool. And so, you know, 15 years ago, the theory of change was we would find places where there's not a lot of fishing, where there's not a lot of economic activity, and we would, you know, ban fishing. Mm -hmm. And that's created a lot of anger on behalf of the people who own those areas traditionally, because they're not allowed to vote for the people who make those decisions. And some of these decisions are permanent. And so the tool that we used back then and and continue to use is the Antiquities Act, where a president has the ability to use executive authority. And I think the way it's changed since then is the bar to use the Antiquities Act is even higher Mm. than it was before. And you have to have a much deeper level of engagement with uh, the people who live in these communities before that, that action takes place. And like I know the Biden administration just announced a new policy of working with Native Hawaiians where all these all decisions that will affect Native Hawaiians, there has to be a consultation with the government agency where Native Hawaiians are represented. And that, that's a change, and I think it's a good change. I'd like to see something happen with the territories as well, because yeah. there, there are American Samoans and Chamorros and Rafalawash and all these other Micronesian groups who are living in the U.S. territories, who deserve the same level of consultation. Again, on the ocean space, I think there's also sort of a turn towards ocean policies that have more inclusion, more engagement with communities. And one of them is the National Marine Sanctuaries program. There's all these different types of protected areas in our country. There's national forests, national parks, national wildlife refuges. The National Marine Sanctuaries are a, a type of protected area on the ocean, and by law, they require a lot of community engagement. There's a lot of, especially indigenous communities, who are working towards designating several new ones.
0: That's so cool. I love that it has become people-focused and that people who are directly impacted are being consulted, as they really should be.
1: We don't often consider like who carries the burden of nature,
0: right. and
1: where are these protected areas going to be created, and who are the people that have to be the ones to sacrifice because these places are fished these places are hunted they also want to build condos and movie theaters and and factories and sorts of things grazing land and so i I think as the conservation movement grows where greater realization is being given to the people that live in these places and we we might have different outcomes you Mm -hmm. know at, at the same time like those of us living on the east coast We deserve a network of protected areas, too. I live in Washington, D.C. I have a lot of access to green space there, but there are communities all across the United States where they don't have access to green spaces or they don't have access to the beaches or access to the beaches is restricted to a certain type of person. Areas that are more urban, it's a different type of community engagement and it's a it's a different type of access, but it's something that we also need.
0: There's been this shift. I think it's really important. And I had no idea that that shift had happened. So that's really cool. Do you think, looking back to your time at UR, do you think your former self would be surprised about kind of where your life has taken you and what you're doing now?
1: So my career didn't really exist 20 years ago. That's the thing. And When I was at Richmond, the thing that I learned to do was I learned how to read a science paper. I learned how to write a science paper, even though I was a terrible student. I, I actually think I was probably the worst science student the University of Richmond has ever produced. My GPA, I think it was like 2.001 and i think the minimum to graduate was like two so even though i was a terrible student some of it did sink in i had a good science background so even though i'm not i don't have a phd i don't have a master's degree but i still write science papers these days you know 20 years later but i don't think my career existed 20 years ago and so like if anything richmond prepared me to work in a career that didn't exist yet yeah basically what i do is like i just go around and i tell people to like kill fewer fish that's my job but Things like how to organize a legislature to pass a law, I I don't think those things are taught in colleges. You kind of have to learn them on the job. But I'm not a scientist, but I do science. So (laughs) I I, I guess the the younger Angelo didn't realize how lazy he was. (laughs) And so he might look at this older Angelo and be like, oh, yeah, that's not surprising. (laughs) <laughs> yeah you know it's like you didn't actually become a scientist but you still do science yeah that, that yeah. kind of makes sense
0: yeah i'm struck by your comment the science education that you are when you were here was very like read a paper write a paper very sciencey and like if that wasn't your strong suit like maybe you are exactly kind of what you're supposed to be because you're not doing you know exactly what you are was training yeah. you to do <laughs> but they beautiful. were help
1: they were helpful skills
0: excellent <laughs> i'm sure people are pleased to hear that <laughs> If someone was interested in pursuing a similar line of work to you, like what would be your advice to them for getting started?
1: I came up with a strong science background, and I think a lot of a lot of conservation has been driven by science, and, and that worked for me. It, it doesn't necessarily work for everybody else. There, are actually like there's a million roles in conservation. Like, we also mm-hmm. need lawyers, and we need we need accountants, we need leaders. I'm a terrible public speaker. Does Richmond still have the leadership school?
0: We do. You can, yes, you
1: can still major. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I have no idea. Well, I never took a leadership class. It, like the leadership, it doesn't pay well. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's 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 one of the the difficult truths about careers in conservation. Is, is if you want to make money, you should really be going to law school or getting that engineering degree. Conservation has diversity issues because really only wealthy people can afford to not be paid. And not that I'm wealthy. I'm not. I'm not wealthy. But like I've i I've had a very fulfilling career, and I've I've been able to do amazing things and. Like the the, the things that are my job are the things that some people pay to go on vacation to do. Mm. So I've had a very fulfilling career and I've been all over the world and I've met presidents and I've done incredible things. So I don't want to turn people off it. But, you know, (laughs) if if making money is important to you conservation is not the job you want to have it, it's you have to find joy in the actual work and the work is difficult our planet is in a worse shape today than it was mm. when i graduated from college 22 years ago there's there's a lot of winning but there's also a lot of losing one thing that i've seen people really excel at in conservation is like when they bring that other skill that isn't necessarily science. And, you know, sometimes that's art, sometimes that's singing, but conservation is more about managing people than it is about managing nature. And so, you know, skills that you can bring that connect you to other human beings will make you successful in conservation. You know, sometimes that's communications. There's a ukulele right here. Like I bring ukulele with me wherever I go, and nothing breaks down barriers like drunken singing.
0: <laughs>
1: but human connection skills are, are are what makes the successful conservationist.
0: That's wonderful. Well, thank you. I have one final question for you, and it's it's one I ask everyone. What does it mean to be a spider to you?
1: So it's it's been a, a real privilege to be a spider. My dad's from the Pacific Islands, while well, my mom is white. My dad would not have been allowed to go to the University of Richmond uh, because of the color of his skin, and you know it was a privilege for me. Like I'm literally the first generation of people of color at the University of Richmond, uh-huh. even though that was like the 1990s, and I'm still alive. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Richmond is a great place to learn how to be a scientist. You know, to get a great education, and for me, it was it was a privilege to be a spider. The place I'm in with my career right now is like I, I've done very well. Like I, you know, I have a good job. I've done some great things. I've more than got my foot in the door, and so in my second act as a spider, I, I would want to keep the door open for people to follow me through. And so I, I've seen those changes at Richmond. Students now can. The boys used to live on one side, and the girls lived on the other side. Yeah, and like the the school in the '90s, it was like. 95 percent white and we had a football team and a basketball team where all the guys were black and so like it was it was a very elite white space that can be difficult if you're not an elite white person even even for like you know white kids who aren't wealthy like it, it can be it can be a difficult place to navigate but i read my magazines and I, you know i think the winds of change have, have come to richmond and i think that's a good thing it'll it'll make the school a better place and it'll, it'll give kids a better education in the long run even if it's difficult
0: Thanks for listening to As Spiders Do from the University of Richmond Office of Alumni Relations. We hope you enjoyed hearing from today's alumni guests and learned a little bit more about what it means to be a Richmond spider. This episode was edited by Maggie Johnson and Charlotte Fabatter. Our episode music is by FAS Sounds from Pixabay. You can subscribe to As Spiders Do wherever you get your podcasts. Rate our show and leave us a review to let us know what you think. We're always looking for new stories to share. So let us know who else we should feature by emailing us at alumni at richmond.edu. That's all for this episode. Talk to you soon. And remember, there are spiders everywhere and that's a good thing.